Okay, joined back here in studio uh, by Dr. Brian Brettschneider. How you doing? Very good. How are you? P- PhD uh, at Climatologist49. That's me. You're uh, you're pretty active on Twitter, um, and you have a ton of followers, like 34,000. You have quite so, a few. Yeah, 35,000, something like that. So for folks on Twitter, I'm sure they're aware of you, but if, if not, and also you've been on, I think I saw you a couple of years ago, you were on NBC. I watch NBC Nightly News almost every night, and you were on there. Uh, Lester Holt came up here, right, for some... Yeah, he, he actually lived up here when he was, I think, a teenager. Um, and so he came up to do a story on the receding Portage Glacier. He lived up here? Like, oh, I think military. Wasn't it military, maybe? I'm not sure, but, but as part of the news story, there was a picture of him, you know, standing at what's now the Portage Glacier Visitor Center parking lot. Oh, yeah. You can see the glacier in the background. I remember that. Mm-hmm. So so uh, for the folks who don't know, you're, you're a climatologist. You're a PhD in climatology. So you're, you study the climate. And for Twitter... Um, one of the th- favorite things I like about you, p- you post all these interesting little kind of weird, like temperature, rain, uh, Alaska, but sometimes other places. Um, it, so maybe, it's not weird. I mean, it's just, it's fun. To, I mean, I just don't see that really anywhere else. So it's always something I, I catch. And um, no, 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 I'm just kidding. Yeah. You know, that's, um, um, so yeah, so my background is in, in geography and then climatology. So my, my PhD dissertation was actually on hurricane climatology, which is kind of interesting uh, now that I'm up in Alaska. Um, but um, but I am a, uh, a physical scientist and a climate scientist with the National Weather Service Alaska region based here in Anchorage. Are you from Alaska or did you? No, I'm not from Alaska. I'm originally from Texas, but I've been here for about 17 years now. Where did you do your um, your, your PhD? What school? Um, Texas State University in uh, Central Texas. It's near Austin. So how'd you go from Texas and hurricanes to Alaska and glaciers and tundra? Well, I was working for a, um, uh, environmental planning firm and they were opening an office up in Alaska. And so, you know, they basically looking for volunteers to see if anyone's interested in coming up here. And so we had gone on a vacation up here and we really liked it and kind of had in the back of our mind, if there was an opportunity someday to get up here, we would, uh, we'd, we'd seriously look at it. And so we decided, uh, we would jump in and, Come on up here and and make the uh, the trip up to Alaska. So when did you when did you move up here? Uh, Two thousand and six. Oh, so right like Pal- when Palin got elected. Yes, Palin was governor. I moved here in '04, so I'm, I was nineteen. So I moved here kind of right before, but I was twenty one when she was. I didn't follow politics at all. I mean, I kind of knew generally what was going on, but I was I just remember being like, oh my god, you know, like because you know, she especially when the McCain thing happened. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um. So, so your national weather, so the stuff you do on like Twitter, is that, I know it's job related, but is that also just kind of, cause you have, you have the blog, the blog, the climate blog too, that I go and check out sometimes. Yeah. So, you know, so the national weather service has official, um, you know, Twitter feeds, um, each of the offices here in Alaska, the regional office, the, uh, river forecast center, the, um, the CI desk. So there's any number of official ones. Um, and many, many, of uh, you know, just staff people, they have their own feeds where they'll, they'll put out little bits of information here and there that, um, might be of interest to, uh, to some people or a lot of people, but that, that kind of reflect things that they're, uh, that they're following or that they're particularly interested in. So you said you did hurricanes with your, your dissertation. I lived in Australia for a year and they call them, cy- uh, was it typh- no, cyclone, no, typhoons, I guess, right? Cyclones. Cyclones. So wait, yeah, cyclones. So why did, what, why do they have the. 
just the different names, you know. So in the same thing, right? in the yeah, Atlantic and Eastern um, Pacific, they're hurricanes. Um, they're in the Central Pacific, they're typhoons in the Western Pacific. They're they're um, cyclones in the South Pacific and in the Indian Ocean and the the Bay of Bengal. So it's either yeah a cyclone, uh, typhoon, or hurricane. They're all the same thing. So so uh, I read a book recently. Um Fact Factfulness by this guy Hans Rosling, and part of it was about um, kind of like how, you know, in the last 50 or 60 years, things have gotten a lot better for most most people. Like, there's l- less people living in poverty. I mean, there's still people living in poverty, but things have improved a lot. And one of the things in the book was about kind of weather phenomenon, and he said, well, there's definitely, like, what the weather's, you know, climate is changing. It seems like there's so much, when something bad happens, like a ty- typhoon or a t- tornado or some the water goes, you know, way down, like in, we're seeing in like Las Vegas. So with climate is, I mean, the climate is, it's always been changing. Is it, is it, is it worse? Is it really bad? Or is it just, we see more stuff on the news when something bad happens and it, it appears kind of like worse than it is, or is it just really, I mean, is it really bad in 20 years? Is it, are we all going to be underwater? I mean, it's. Well, time scales are important. Right. So in, and I, I hear this a lot online. They say, oh, well, you know, when the dinosaurs were here, it was 15 degrees warmer. So what are we complaining about? Well, we didn't live here when the dinosaurs were here. Um, you know, the entirety of human, his, of human civilization. Uh, so, you know, 10,000 years or so going back to the Mesopotamians, um, a very small range of temperatures, um, a very, very consistent over, uh, you know, 10,000 10, years or so. Um, and what we're seeing now is a shift, a very abrupt shift out of that very tight range. And so it's very, you know, when you look at the data, you look at time series, it's, it's very, very dramatic. And um, one of the things that goes along with that is increases in variability. Now, the increase in variability for temperatures are on one side of the distribution. We're, we're going to get a lot more warm stuff than we are going to get cold stuff. Cold stuff can still happen. Uh, you know, January, the coldest month on record in Alaska was less than 10 years ago. But since then, we've had like 25 of the warmest months on record. So, so, so when you say like weather is short term, climate's long term, right? So, but well, well not, not exactly. So um, we can talk about the climate of 2020. We can talk about the climate of the Middle Ages. We can talk about the climate of the Holocene or mm-hmm. of the, the Jurassic period. So when we talk about climate, it could be of, of any... Any length period, not any length, but many different timescales, depending on what the uh, the context is or what we're what we're interested in. But if we're talking about like weeks or or months, that's like we need the weather the weather forecast. I mean, that's like a shorter time. Yeah, anything really beyond say two weeks. Um, now we're talking. That's I would say that's in the realm of climate. I think most people would. You could you could make an argument that you know three four weeks out. You can still have some some sense of predictability at weather for weather phenomenon, mm-hmm. uh, but really beyond that, we're you know we're we're flipping open the almanac and say, well, what is it usually like in September, or what is it like in September during a La Nina year, or when what's it like in September when the sea ice and the Chukchi is re- the mic. What's it like in in September when the sea ice and the Chukchi Sea is shifted over toward Wrangell Island, for example? So so we have lots of different ways that we can look at it. Um, but to answer your question about um, the variability, if, if, I, if I remember that, if that was the question, um, maybe maybe if you could repeat the question. Well, I guess the, the question was about 
the difference because some people say, oh, it's really cold. They're, you know, the global warming, but that's really cold. Like you said, one, one winter was cold or maybe one period, one month long period was very cold, but, but like the short term, I guess, versus the long, the patterns versus the short term, what might happen in the course of, you know, a month or a few months. You know, one of the things about weather is everyone experiences it. So I went outside today and I experienced the weather and it was cool. Uh, two days ago, uh, Anchorage set a record for the coldest August 20th high temperature on record. Yeah, it's so, been, it's been, it was hot. It was hot in June. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then there was not a lot of rain. And then all of a sudden now it's right. really rainy and, and pretty, pretty chilly. Yeah. So, so we set a record low temperature. Does that mean there's no global warming? We set a record low in July. Uh, record low temperature, July 8th or 9th, something like that. Does that mean there's no global warming? And I like to tell people, you know, it's Alaska. It can still get cold, but it's, it's, you have to look at both sides of the ledger, right? So, you know, in the last 20 years, Anchorage has five, six, seven cold, low temperature records and a hundred warm temperature records. And so does those five or six, do we we counterbalance that with the hundred on the warm side? Can, can, can they coexist at the same time? And the answer is a demonstrable, yes, they can. Just because it's cold sometimes, doesn't mean there's no global warming. So, so what I wanted to ask you is there, there was like the, this you know, medieval warm period and then little ice age that happened, you know, and then, you know, the Vikings were in Greenland and then it got cold and they, and that was, you know, hundreds of years ago. So what was, I mean, that was obviously a, a, psych, a cyclical mm-hmm. event where it got really warm and people could go different places and grow food and, and then it got really cold. So um, I guess how much, well, we need, we, need, we need to be careful when we say really cold. Well, I guess it got cold where the people said, okay, we can't be here anymore in Greenland. But, but the, it, 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 did, it was warm and then it was cold, I guess. Maybe t- t- talk more about the, the medieval um, little ice age and the medieval warm period. Well, so um, there are certainly natural cycles. And, so, and, and there is a tremendous irony in that climate scientists are always asked, have you, have you considered natural cycles? And the irony is we're the ones that figured out about the natural cycles. So we're, we're, we figured it out. We talked to people about it. We presented that. And then people kind of use that as a, as a, as a counter argument. Say, well, there's no real global warming because guess what? Have you thought about, you know about these climate cycles? Cool. So, so, you know, so that as a, as a starter, there, if you look at the so-called medieval warm period and the so-called little ice age, we're, and I'm using my hands here to, 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 uh, to show magnitude, they're relatively small changes. Now, not zero changes and not non-trivial because what we find is one degree Celsius, so almost two degrees Fahrenheit, a shift of that amount has a tremendous effect on the global climate system. You, know, you can turn areas that are agriculturally productive into not agriculturally productive with a one degree Celsius temperature change. You can, uh, you can move sea level up and down by a couple of meters with one degree temperature change. So in these, these times of these, these cyclical natural cycles that were uh, centuries long, not decades like now, but centuries long, we did have uh, enough internal variability for it to be noticeable for civilizations in many parts of the world. So the big difference back then is there was just far, far less people you know, now there's seven, eight, seven billion people. Back then there was, I don't know, tens of millions of people, I would assume, I mean, way less. So now we have so many more people. 
I guess the first thing is how much like of what's happening now with the climate is it how much of it is is would you say is kind of man-made and then how much of it is maybe cyclical but regardless you know what do we do about I mean obviously technology we have to find ways to all these cities I mean I think some like half of the population lives like within you know pretty close to the water around the world well there's a lot to unpack there it's a lot of questions so um as far as you know that there were only millions of people back then so you know, I guess you're asking, did, were they impacting the climate? I'd say, oh, no, I'd say, I'd say, the, I'd say I, I think probably arguably it was more just cyclical, but now there's just so many, if that were to happen now, there's so many more people, I guess it was probably just easier for them to deal with that with tens of millions of people compared to 7 billion people, you know, big cities and they're on, near the water and people live in, you know, they aren't is, is easily able to move away than they were back in, you know, those times when it was probably right. easier. So, just- you know, in, in hunter-gatherer times, um, you know, it, if if sea level rose by a meter, it wasn't probably very difficult to move, move down the way to, to move inland a little ways uh, and and be uh, above the rising sea levels. Now, you know, where did people tend to congregate? Well, people congregated where the resources were, where the animals were, where the plants were, and those one degree changes in temperature, one degree Celsius. Um, would have a dramatic effect on the plants and the animals that were there. So, so they may have actually had to move hundreds of miles. I'm, I'm, that's not my area of research. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just speculating. So, so, so now, as you noted, you know, we have almost or around 8 billion people, current population of the earth and projected to go up to 10 or 11 mm-hmm. you know, in the next hundred years or so. And, you know, if sea level rises by half a meter by a meter, you know, you potentially have hundreds of millions, maybe a billion people um, that I are mean, now just in the U.S. Be, alone, like Miami, New York, Los Angeles. And you think about these, like, you know, places in Europe and South America and Africa. I mean, all, it's just like, I think it's, I'm not sure, but I, I think something like half of the world's population lives within, you know, I forget how many miles of, of water. It's, it's, well, it's, it's not so much the distance to the water, it's, it's the, the elevation above the water. And so when we're talking, you know, tens of or hundreds of millions to maybe even a billion people that are currently above sea level that may be below sea level in their lifetime or in in one or two generations, then the you know the uh, the cost the cost of relocating those people. I mean, we see in Alaska. Well, what's the cost of relocating the people of Nutok yeah. or Kivalina or Shishmaref? Hundreds of millions of dollars. Now, what's the cost of relocating Miami? Right. What's the cost of relocating? Dhaka, Bangladesh, or, or many other megacities that are right at sea level, um, you know, more than the entire GDP of those countries for, for decades, probably. So, um, so the cost, so that's, that's the real cost um, in terms of dollars and cents. Now, on the other side of that ledger, what is the cost of, uh, of mitigation efforts to, to stop the, uh, the warming in its tracks? And the cost of doing that is orders of magnitude less mm-hmm. than the cost of dealing with the impacts over the next several generations. So, so from a from a, a dollars and cents point of view, there's a there's a very strong argument. Really, the only argument to be made is that it's cost effective to do something now. And 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 the cool thing is, we don't need any new technology. We actually know how to do it, and we have everything we need to do. And yeah, there will be some inconveniences along the way without question. There will be some winners and losers along the way, no question. 
a lot more winners, of course. Um, but the cost of inaction, again, is, is far greater than the cost of the action. What about, you know, one of the arguments you hear is, okay, we can do all these things in Europe, but if China and India with two and a half billion people aren't as willing to do these things, then it's, it puts, you know, the people who are willing to change um, their, way, their ways or may, maybe adopt mitigation efforts at a disadvantage globally. That's one of the things I, you know, I hear and, and I, I think makes sense because if China's booming, India's booming, and, and they aren't playing ball, how, how do we, I mean, it's got to be a global effort, right? Everybody's got to be on board. Ideally, um, it, makes, it, makes the, uh, it, it's a, it's, it makes the job easier for everybody if everybody is, is doing their, their part. Um, now, what if some of the big players don't do their part? You know, then what should everyone else do? Is, is it fair for Europe, for the U.S., for South America, for Africa, to, to have to pull more weight because other people don't? Um, I agree, that would not be fair. But again, the counterfactual is, you know, we all, we have a potentially uh, an unlivable planet uh, for billions of people. And then some countries, in, you know, developing co- emerging countries, economies in Af- Africa, they want Nigeria, they, they're growing and they, 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 they're saying, hey, we don't make, don't put us, you guys, you guys did your thing and you guys grew and you guys are, have these big economies. So it's a very, comp, you know, so that's why so, it's not getting solved because it's, so, it's such a complicated problem. No, I would disagree. It's not a complicated problem. It's an easy problem. But the, what's complicated is uh, asking people to make sacrifices and asking people to make upfront, upfront costs for something that they may not see the benefit of oh. in their lifetime. Um, and so, but as far as the, the developing countries that say, hey, we want, we want our cars, we want our you know, office buildings, we want uh, our you know, three weeks or four weeks of vacation, um, you know, those, com- those countries uh, will have the, the benefit uh, moving forward of the technologies and the innovations that we're developing right now. So for example, imagine country X that currently has very few automobiles say, hey, we want, you know, it's, it's the dream that everyone has, every household has an automobile. Well, moving forward, they're gonna have the benefit of having a whole slew of uh, electric vehicles to choose from. So they're gonna have the benefit of, of a, a automobile society, if, if, if you think of that as a benefit, um, without all the, the downsides of the pollution uh, that went along with automobiles uh, in, in the last, you know, 100 years. So, so without putting like a precise uh, percentage on it, I mean, how much of what is going on now would you contribute to like man-made and then how much of it is, you know, would be happening anyways? I mean, I know it's probably very hard to... So the, the last international panel, panel of climate change um, report a year or so ago I believe they, they, at, they attributed about 90% of the observed warming to greenhouse gases. So, you know, and you mentioned the little ice age, we had been on a slight downward trend, and we would still probably be on that slight downward trend without the addition of the greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. So this is like the coal, I mean, this is all the gas, cars, emissions, basically, of all the... Emissions, right. We, we've... Um, uh, we're at about 410 parts per million um, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere right now. Uh, I think pre-industrial was, um, I should know this off the top of my head, uh, 250 or something like that. So, um, so we've, we've increased it by more than 50%. Um, and that, you know, it's really, 
you know, kind of a middle school science fair project. You can show how adding greenhouse gases to, you know, to an air to to an air to a, to a system warms it up because that's that's what carbon dioxide does. It chemically it it absorbs uh, you know long wave radiation. So it it's it, science of it is really not very complicated. So so is is nuclear? I mean, a good nuclear seems to be the best option for. I mean, like France is I think eighty percent nuclear powered and nuclear is pretty clean, but it's it's like really hard to. I mean, especially in Europe and but now with this Russia thing in Ukraine, this get you know there's this energy crisis. I mean, is nuclear an answer to, to some of these problems? Well, there's a whole um, uh, big debate there, but yeah, no, there's a whole kind of uh, shopping list. Of, of different options for uh, energy production, right? So, so we're talking uh, for you know electrical power plant type generation, uh, where whereas that can be, uh, you know, well currently we've got coal, natural gas. Um, you can burn, you know, s- s- diesel. I know you know s- a lot of uh, communities off the road network have to burn diesel to generate electricity, but from a large you know grid size grid scale, we of course have we have hydropower solar power and uh, nuclear power and nuclear uh, like you said France and uh, to some degree you know Japan and some other European countries um, have invested heavily in nuclear that is certainly an option on the table there's a lot of people that are you know that, that aren't super uh, big on the idea I mean Ch- Chernobyl through my island well look, Fukushima look, look at right now you know the day we're recording this several of the the nuclear plants in Ukraine are basically being occupied by oh, is that, is that, is that by, by an invading army so you know that's obviously that's that's a suboptimal situation so there, there's security there's long-term nuclear storage considerations so but it, it's certainly one of the one of the tools in the toolbox have you seen there's been several presentations in the last couple of years in, in Juno on these micronuclear reactors? It's kind of a new, it's not really, I don't think it's quite there yet, but they're pretty close. And it's basically a connex that yeah, they can I, drop in, you know, a village. And, it, you know, it, it, the price goes, the price goes way down, the price of energy compared to like diesel. Um, yeah, and, I've, 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 I'm only very slightly familiar. I, I've heard, you know, probably less than you have about the, um, the potential for, for these kind of micro nuclear uh, uh, generators. But, um, you know, it, Again, in in the in the the, the grand scheme of, of options, ideally, and, and really, this is this is just the way it's going to be in fifty years, seventy five years. At some point in the future, um, you know, all electrical generation will be some some form of either renewable or nuclear. I wouldn't I wouldn't consider nuclear a, a renewable um, because you you use up the the, uh, to, the starting have, point. You have to get rid of the. Material, put, right. it, put, it, put it somewhere. Um, so with solar, with wind, um, and, and ultimately fusion, uh, that, that's, you know, there's a joke that fusion is always, you know, 30 years away. And they've been <laughs> saying that for, for 50 years. Um, there's, there does seem to be some more substantial movement on that in the last couple of years. But, um, you know, our grandkids, grandkids um, probably live in a, in a world with uh, fusion generated uh, electricity, but, but in much shorter time scales, um, you know, we're, we're seeing the transition across the world to, uh, to renewable energy, to solar and wind basically is, uh-huh. is, is the, the technology of the day. And it's, and we have the capacity, we have the, the space, we have the, the ability, the technology to, to deploy that. Um, 
you know, nationally and globally so that we can, we can meet most of the demand it, as long as we invest in that infrastructure. How much do you think technology will help with it? Like, you know, for example, when cities got big, there, there was like horse manure everywhere and it was a big problem. I mean, in New York and Chicago, they were like, what are we going to do? You know, they, they couldn't figure it out. Not only that, but, but the dead horses, the horses died. Yes, you know? it was a huge problem and nobody right. knew it. And there, there's, I read a book, I'm trying to think of the name. It was, your, it was like a big, you know, panels were convened. What do we do? And then, you know, the car got, the, un, you know, combustible engine got invented and that, that kind of solved that. So, I mean, how much, and again, a lot more people, a lot, probably bigger problems, but how much can technology, do you think we can rely on technology to solve some of these these, these, these big problems? Well, so a, a couple of responses. One is we have the technology right now. We don't need to invent anything. And we have the technology to, um, to reduce our emissions enough so that we can stabilize the climate. So, so I like to oh, remind but, but people. But we're not that, doing that yet. Like where, we, where, where you think we, sh- we should be. Well, and, and, and well, I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. And then the second part of that is, um, you know, kind of historically, one of the, the traps that, that we've fallen into is we, we kind of wait for, well, we, we say to ourselves, well, technology will save us from ourselves. And if we just wait a few more years, the, the smart people will invent something to make the problem go away. Uh, or mostly go away. Um, and sometimes that's worked out and other times it hasn't. Um, so again, we, we have the technology right now uh, with solar and wind and, and the prices are such that it's economically competitive. You know, it's not, um, it's not uh, you know, we're not m- taking a loss on putting these technologies and implementing them and connecting them to the grid. So, um, so as far as you know, what's the next step? Well, the next step is, is the investment in the infrastructure, um, you know, at the national scale and, and then, you know, other countries, hopefully, uh, at a global scale. I mean, it, it's just so frustrating. The, the, the cost of, I think the cost of, I got to remember the numbers here, but building a mile of, of, um, of rail, you know, high-speed rail or, or subway in this country, it's like, it's, it's, whatever the number is, it's so much more than Europe. I mean, it's just so much higher. You know, it's, it's, let's say if it's, I forget the number, but it's, it's book 1 billion Americans talks about it, but it's like, you know, in Europe, 10 million a mile or something, right? Here it's a hundred million. You know, it's like, I'm not sure the numbers are exact, but it's a, it's a scale of magnitude larger. And, you know, we seem like we can't even do these basic things where we have like this high speed rail thing in California they've been talking about for 20 years and they've spent, I don't know how many billions of dollars and they've done like 20 miles or something, you know? Well, so, I, I'm not sure how high speed rail relates to, uh, uh, you know, changing of our uh, uh, electrical well, generation capacity. I guess more mass transit compared to less, you know, less people need cars, more mass transit would, would be a, it's just, I guess, step, step in the right direction. Well, I, I'm not sure how much people view uh, high-speed rail as a... Uh, That's just one example. I mean, other, other things that could right, as just a, don't get done. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there's, a, there's a whole, I mean, we've, we've been talking about electrical generation, um, but there's also... Um, on, on the vehicle side, there's electric vehicles and hybrid vehicles. Um, there is, um, you know, e-bikes. There's, um, th- there's, there's other parts of the, of the, the transportation ecosystem um, that all, you know, work together. Some of them to greater magnitudes, some of them to lesser magnitudes. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it stands to reason if, you know, if 30 people are taking a bus ride somewhere, that's going to be you know, more efficient than 30 people in cars. And I'm not saying that's, we all need to do that. I'm not saying that, mm-hmm. but, um, but it, it, it's not a, it's not a great leap to, to, to realize that, um, 
you know, improvements to infrastructure, um, whether it be um, mass, mass transportation, electrification of vehicles. There's, there's a lot of opportunities for, you know, kind of reducing the whole, you know, emissions footprint. So if, if things get, let's say it's a worst case scenario, things get really bad, maybe they get bad quicker, but, or if it's in, you know, 50 years or 500 years, what, like, what's the worst case scenario? If we don't, if we don't, you know, deal well, with this, or if it just happens, is it just like mass exodus of people and, you know, ref, climate refugees and, and just chaos? Like, what's, what's kind of the worst case scenario if well, this doesn't I mean, get fixed? Well, I mean, there, it, a lot of it, you know, what, what constitutes a worst case scenario, you know, depends a lot on what you consider important. Uh, so, you know, when I was, um, when I was teaching many years ago, you know, I remember telling my students that, you know, that the, the federal agency that spent the most money studying the changing climate, climate change, wasn't NOAA, it wasn't the USGS, logical, it was the State Department, um, because they know that that creates unstable um, uh, you know, systems, unstable countries, you know, and, you know, you can imagine a situation where a country is flooding, they're no longer able to produce their own food, and they, you know, they look at the map and they say, well, well who did this? You know, who do, who do we take out our, our, our anger on, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. and, and, you know, so, you know, one time it might've been, uh, we, we were, we were concerned with uh, religious fanaticism. Well, maybe at some point in the future, we, we would be worried about, um, you know, the people who feel like they were, uh, they were you know, refugees or victims of, of, of a changing climate. You could imagine a country that has to spend their entire GDP relocating cities, you know, that they're going to be, they're not going to perhaps, you know, want to trade with the United States or with um, Western European countries. Yeah, or, de definitely nat national security, definitely um, a national security issue. And, you know, so another thing I used to tell my students, and again, this is like 20 years ago, I would say, um, you know, uh, Ukraine is the breadbasket of Europe as far as grain production. Mm -hmm. And in a warming climate, that's going to change to Russia. Uh, how, how do you feel about that uh, as, as agricultural productivity regions um, shift uh, to uh, areas that are farther north? And, you know, that was kind of just a thought experiment. Now, of course, they're, uh, they're accelerating that by, by actually invading Ukraine. But, um, but you can imagine right now, what if, what if the agriculturally productive areas of the Midwest, what if those shifted up to Saskatchewan and Manitoba and, you know, in Alberta, and now all of a sudden we had to import corn and grains from, from Canada. Um, you know, you could imagine uh, the, uh, the turmoil that would cause to American you know, farmers, uh, economic our, our policy. Economy, our economy, yeah. Yeah, and, and we're perhaps the country that, that's best prepared to deal with, with these things, but it would cause tremendous upheaval even in our country. So there's really... I mean, you know, the worst case scenarios are, are just that they're they're worst case and they're, you know, they're they're uh, uh, political instability and they're refugees and they're, um, uh, you know, uh, probably a lot of people would die, just die, too. Right. Well, there's that, too. Yeah. So, you know, so there, there's really, you know, there the the, the list of, of possible bad outcomes, you know, range from, you know, bad to apocalyptic. But again, the but but the silver lining is that as far as from an emissions point of view, you know, we have we have the tools to deal with it now. You know, as a thought experiment, I like to say to people, well, let's just even if you ignore, you know, what what the source is, you know, what who who emitted 
what? Let's just say uh, aliens from some other star system uh, injected a bunch of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere and, and then just left. And, you know, would we say, well, we didn't do it, so, or, uh, you know, we're going to need to wait for the aliens to come and, and fix it. <laughs> we would fix it, and we would say, well, we know how to fix it, and we have the technology to fix it, so we'll fix it. Um, and so, again, we, we do have, we have the technology, uh, we just don't really have the will to, to do it just yet. But that, that's changing. You know, there's, there's, there's a lot of... Uh, international commitments, um, you know, in, in most countries, they don't, they don't see it as kind of a left-right thing. They see it as uh, a right and wrong thing that, you know, we've, we've kind of messed things up to some degree and we have an opportunity to fix it. I mean, going back to the agriculture, it's interesting you talked about, you know, shifted up to Canada. I saw a thing a few months back on 60 Minutes about, about wine production in France and these Bordeaux regions. It's, it's like, in some, in some cases, some of these wineries that have been there for, you know, centuries um, can't produce wine anymore. And now they're starting to do grow these grapes in England. Hmm. And it was a whole, do you see that by chance? I, I didn't happen to see it, but really, really fascinating that, that some of these regions, they just totally, they went from, I mean, it was like no, no production of wine to like, to like a huge decline, but then some of them have moved to, to, to parts of England where you would have never thought you could grow, you know, grow grapes, but that's what's happening. And there was a whole really, I mean, it's kind of what you're talking about a fa- fascinating shift of, of, where these people go to, you know, sell the product. And the one, the one um, company was the, the lady who was running it. I think her, it was like great, 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 great. It was like in the family for, for centuries. Mm. And, and then it was basically, we're, you know, we have to figure out some, something else to do because we can't make any wine. Mm. Small problem, you know, but on the gl- gl- larger scale of, of wheat and grain. Yeah. That's a. Well, and then, and not only that, but when, when we, we talk about agricultural uh, region shifting, well, all the other stuff that isn't may- maybe agriculturally uh, important shifts as well. So the trees shift and the pests shift, you know, maybe you're going to get, you know, some little critters that are going to damage all the other stuff that you, mm-hmm. you're already counting on um, or invasive species, or you're going to get um, different rainfall patterns, which may be a little bit at different time of the year. And so, the, so yeah, maybe you have grapes in England. But the stuff that they're that they're already producing in England, now those things are suffering too. Now though, maybe those are moving up to Scotland, and eventually you kind of run out of space to move up. It's like a domino. Yeah, you know, it's like a domino. Exactly. So, so you're you're you sound pretty confident that we're gonna humanity is gonna work this thing out. Well, um, I'm optimistic. You know, uh, it, it's kind of human nature to not really deal with a problem until it reaches a critical stage. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's true. Yeah. And. We're, see, we're, we're starting to, to see that we're, we're having critical impacts. Now, every person may not feel it individually, but collectively we're seeing more and more evidence of it. And, you know, you know being here in Alaska, um, we've been here about the same amount of time. You know, we see changes. And, you know, I go back to the same, you know, glaciers every year, and they look vastly different. Uh-huh. You know, I see tree line moving up the mountains, you know, and see um, alders where they used to be tundra. And so... You know, the, and these are these are changes that you know that, that you notice almost on a yearly basis. We've had you know I'm thinking about I don't know seven eight years back. I don't know if you remember that one year where it didn't snow until like way into December. That was a really weird. It was just because I first moved here in '04, and for for me it was for many many years it was always like by Halloween it was going to be snow on the ground. And yeah, then, I mean there, there there's there's variability for that. Like 
couple of years in a row, Fairbanks hasn't had snow on the ground. They didn't have snow on, on Halloween, but it was plenty cold. It just was just dry. And so, you know, for snow, you need, you need cold and precipitation. So no, if, if you're missing one of them, you know, you, 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 don't, you don't get any snow. And maybe it's just looking back, but I've talked to people that have been here for, you know, 30, 40, 40 years, and they, and they always say, like, it used to be so much colder and there was so much more snow. You know, maybe people are remembering things different. But, it, you know, it, in my almost 20 years here, I, I definitely think, yeah, it, it's different than when I first right. came here. And, and, and to that extent, we actually, you know, it, it's actually easier for us here in Alaska to, to, to think about these things because we see the changes. You know, if you're in Kansas... You know, it may be harder, even though you are experiencing warmer temperatures and you're experiencing drier droughts and wetter rainy seasons, which is a paradox, but as I can explain that if, if you're interested, um, but it is, it's harder to, to, to visualize, to, to kind of pull those into your life experience. Um, whereas here in Alaska, we see it because we see, you know, where there's stuff that there didn't used to be, or we see how just things are different uh, because because so much of the uh, of those things happen right at the freezing line, we you know, and we uh, that that's a really strong demarcation here. So so we 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 have that advantage that other people don't that we can we can see it, we can we can kind of grasp it in a way that that many other people can't. Well, I mean, I think you nailed it. People don't want to deal with the problem until they have to, and it's just so difficult. If really just you know, in our country, for an example, so many people you know they they have families, they work, they they you know they want to pay the mortgage, they want to do. They want to be going on vacation and it's and now there's this inflation problem. There's all these, you know, so people, it's like, so it's such a far away kind of problem that is like in the ether compared to the daily problems most people face, whether it's, you know, buying food or getting their kids to school or going to work, buying right. a house. Right. And so as I noted earlier, I mean, long-term, the cost of inaction is much, much greater than the cost of action. But in the short term, the, the cost of, of restructuring uh, the way that we generate electricity, and, and that's most of it, and then also how we, um, uh, how we, uh, we do certain types of transportation. Um, you know, the, the cost of transitioning out of those, you know, you know, over 10 and 15, maybe even 20-year time periods, those might have a, have a higher upfront cost, and it might be harder to, to realize the benefits, see the benefits of those, from a dollars and cents point of view. So it was like a paradox. Yeah, but at, but at the same time, you know, the old, uh, uh, you know, an ounce of present, prevention is worth a pound of cure, you know, that really, that idiom really does apply here. And I think in, in many cases, now, of course, you know, sometimes people don't go see the doctor for, for forever because, you know, they, they feel fine or, or whatever. But most people know that, you know, you, you go see the doctor every year or whatever, you get a checkup and, and if they find something, then, then you deal with it versus never going. And then when they finally find something, maybe it's too late to deal with it. So, so, you know, when, when you present to people that, uh, the cost of, of inaction, really how, how high that cost is, um, you know, I think that that can really move people. And, and to your point earlier about, well, should we really be bearing all the, all that cost, you know, maybe, you know, China and India, they need to bear that cost too. And, and, you know, the response to that is, is twofold. One is, yes, they should, um, but what if they don't? And, you know, should we just, well, should we just give up and say, you know, we're all screwed uh, because China won't pull, pull their weight? Or should we 
start pulling that weight and then maybe put pressure oh, on no, them. I, I definitely so, think we, we should. I, I, I just, my point was that, that when there's two and a half billion people in those two countries and they're doing so much, creating so much energy and, 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 and you know, so many of these greenhouse gases and, and they just say, well, screw you. We're not going to, we don't care. It just makes it really difficult for what everybody else does to have maybe the, the impact that's needed. Well, and China has, you know, overtaken the U.S. as the single largest uh, emitter of greenhouse gases. Uh, that happened a couple of years ago. Um, at the same time, though, China, you know, as they really built up their, um, their economy, you know, over the last two to three decades, they did it really on the back of coal, coal power plants. Yeah. And they, they internally faced a tremendous backlash because the pollution was so horrible it was, you know, reducing people's life expectancy. It was really all of a sudden reducing their uh, economic potential. And so they've really, well, I think they, they've really spent a lot the last 10 years working to transition their way out of it. So even though, yeah, they are the largest emitter, um, you know, obviously per capita, they're not. We're still way up there. I think Australia is the highest per capita. But, but anyway, but, but they are, uh, they, they're actually doing... Uh, they're, they're turning that ship around. Um, now, how far they go, you know, remains to be seen. But well, they, during COVID, you know, you saw when the, the those factories stopped. I mean, they, that one of the big big observations from people was, wow, the air is great. Yeah, you saw that in India as well. Mm-hmm. People would, from, I think, from Delhi could see the, the Himalayas, and they hadn't been able to see it for, for you know, for decades or something. Which um, is like in itself kind of an amazing, I mean, that should be a big wake-up call. And that happened here in the United States, too, in Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah. People were able to see the mountains. I saw a picture uh, somebody took of a mammoth, mammoth uh, mm-hmm. a couple of years ago when, you know, when it cleared up. And you could they use that kind of camera angle where it looked a lot bigger than it was. But right. still, you could, yeah, you could see that whole, that range from, from part of L.A. Yeah, and it's, you know, so, you know, if, if, you, if, you, if you look at a, as, a, as a ledger, uh, you know, if you're like an accountant and you look at all the benefits versus all the downsides, um, the benefits far outweigh the downsides. Now, the downsides are, are, are not zero, right? You know, we, we have a, a whole set of, uh, you know, economic institutions. You know, of course, here in Alaska, we are an oil and gas state, uh, or mainly an oil state. Um, so there's, there's a... Um, you know, there's a lot, a lot of talk now about the gas line with the, what's going on in Europe and Russia. Um, yeah, um, it's it's more talk now than it has been in the last five years. I, I would argue that it's it's uh, it's always been talk. It's every study has never shown it has always shown it to be economically, uh, you know, a, a tough a tough go um, that other places uh, can do it for for less money. But that that notwithstanding, you know, the world is now. You could argue it's not fast enough, um, or some people might argue the opposite, but you know, it's the, the transition is occurring. It's happening now. And the, um, you know, the world is investing more in, uh, renewable energy and, you know, at the expense of, uh, fossil fuels. And so, you know, so that, that, that ship has kind of left the port. Uh And so, you know, it, that's not going to turn around now, how fast that ship sails off uh, is an open question, but that's, that's the world as it's transitioning over, you know, in the next several decades. Now, what happens between now and then uh, locally or regionally, um, you know, is going to depend a lot on, on whatever policies are, 
are implemented or promoted uh, in those areas. But but the shift toward uh, toward renewables uh, globally uh, is uh, is is unrelenting at this point. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, um, I'm kind of freaking out. I'm getting a weird disk space warning. It's still fine, but I'm okay. probably going to wrap it up. I don't want to lose this. It's been a really good good conversation. But thanks again, Dr. Brian Brettschneider, for coming in. Folks who are listening, definitely follow you on Twitter. There's always the cool charts and, and, and little maps and things you put up there on all kinds of different precipitation yeah. and wind, you know, temperature. It's really, I, I like looking at those. Yeah, and I'm, I'm happy to, uh, you know, people send me uh, the questions and requests, and I'm, I'm happy to uh, answer stuff. And, and, and you've, been, you've been helpful with me on, I've had some math questions related to elections. <laughs> I'm not very good at the math thing with Excel, so you've been very helpful with that. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Happy to help. And, and then you have the website, too, that you're, you're... Yeah, I mean, I, don't, I have a blog post where I, I put stuff in periodically. I don't, I don't uh, update it very very often. I, I, I think I even went a year without updating and okay. I put four or five posts on this year, I think. Um, so it, it's, it's really, uh, as, as things come up, uh, I'll, I'll post stuff there, but it's not very, it's not very frequently, but, um, but there, there's some, there's some stuff there that one blog post I did recently, uh, the USA Today did like a, a 10,000 word, you know, uh, special insert on it. Uh, uh, I think in, in November. Oh, wow. Um, and I've had, some of the, some of the stuff there featured in uh, the Washington Post and um, uh, like you mentioned CNN and BBC and so uh, people people uh, are always welcome to reach out uh, and with questions or requests or, or whatever and I'll I'll do my best to help out. Okay, definitely follow you on, on Twitter at climatologist forty nine, right? That's it, uh, and you could you can be one of the uh, people that I'll happily subject you to moose photos and that's the other thing is you're, 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 you're very avid outdoor you, you're always out in the mountains doing something with yeah sheep i mean or you know you're always that, taking pictures that, and that's that's the the great one of the great things about living here right is uh you can, uh, you can literally be downtown go home drive 15 minutes park and then you know 20 minutes i mean you could be in places where some people maybe spend their whole life to see once yeah you know i, I say the exact same thing and that you know we can do in a weekend what people plan for years as their Alaska trip of a lifetime. Yeah, we can 100%. just do that in a weekend uh, as long as it's not raining. Even, even sometimes it's the week after work. Yeah. You know, you know, to, uh, you know, with now, well now sunset is before 10 o'clock, but uh, you know, you could in the middle of the summer, you can get off work at, at four or five and, and go spend six hours, seven hours in the mountains and, and come back and it's not even dark yet. So uh, that's, that's something that we, uh, we get to do here in other places. They don't. Thanks for answering questions and, and talking. It's a very, very fascinating topic, and, and I really enjoy your Twitter. So if you know, folks are listening, follow you, follow you on on Twitter, and you'll you'll get some good some All pictures right. of the mountains and some climate, some interesting climate weather data. So appreciate it, Dr. Brian Brettschneider, for coming on, and we'll do this again sometime. My pleasure. Okay, folks, if you have an idea for a podcast or want to do a podcast, get a hold of me. And if you're listening and you're following us on Spotify or Pandora or iTunes or whatever, please give us a like and review. We'd appreciate that. And stay tuned for the next one. Landline.